Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. This week, we're airing a replay from Season 1 of the Dutch Podcast, featuring Tom Williams. Tom joined Mark Newman in the spring of 2022 for a highly controversial episode that set the record straight on so-called adrenal fatigue and the pregnenolone steel. You'll hear more about how the brain is responsible for signaling the cortisol response and why the adrenal glands don't just steal pregnenolone to make cortisol. Buckle up for this one, folks. It's jam-packed with valuable takeaways. Thanks to Dr. Tom Williams for joining us today. Um, If we ever have to worry about being the smartest one in the room today, we don't have to worry about that. So we'll fight for second place. So. Tom is uh, the expert in all things cortisol in my mind. And I, I know, Tom, you dabble in, more than dabble, in a lot of other topics and write books and all of that of categories that I don't actually uh, play around with much in terms of my intellectual capacity. So today we want to focus on the things that you know that are sort of near and dear to what we do. Um, for me, um, you've been really influential in, I think, three big ways in terms of how we interact with this functional endocrinology, functional um, medicine market. And so I want to pick your brain on those things and try to illuminate those things for people. But first of all, uh, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you and good to see you. Yeah, thanks for um, visiting me here in my barn. I guess you guys are uh, relaxing on a couch there. So um, glad you could, I'm glad I could stop in. Uh, Absolutely. Um, So let me just start. Well, you know what, before we get too far into this, I, what is your entry point into functional medicine? I actually don't even off the top of my head know what your PhD is in. So what are you on paper an expert in and how did you find your way into the functional space? So I got my degree in, uh, let's say the mid nineties. So 95, actually right, right in the middle of nineties, uh, from the medical college of Wisconsin in molecular biology, it's more specifically molecular immunology. Um, and so we're not going to get into gene recombination of immunoglobulin genes and, and some of the enzymes, um, uh, that, that perform that, that function, um, which is quite fascinating. And I've been able to leverage that in, in a lot of things, immunology related. Um, but because of my entrance, uh, because of circumstances, which we won't get into, I was actually hired by orthomolecular products, a dietary supplement company, um, in the physician channel, um, this was early on in the days of that company and really early on in sort of the, in the physician channel. Um, and at that time in, in the late nineties, um, there wasn't, obviously that was just when the internet sort of when PubMed became uh, available sort of at the end of at the end of the nineties. Right. And there was a lot of people that didn't have access to information. Um, there weren't that many um, papers being published or at least access to papers being published. So I started really digging into the literature related to dietary supplements and soon found out that sort of the the group of people teaching 
uh, clinicians on how to understand what was at that time, you know, the early functional medicine, integrative alternative medicine, or just sort of different ways of thinking. Some of the educators were actually some of the labs um, who were doing some of these tests and they were trying to explain to doctors, you know, this is what the pathophysiology is and that's why we're measuring this analyte or this biomarker. And, um, and so I started, you know, learning some of the same things the doctors were learning going to a lot of these meetings then I was being asked to begin teaching mostly on the supplement side of things. But again, in order to teach the supplements and how uh, certain herbs or, or vitamins, minerals, et cetera, work, you really have to learn the pathophysiology and, and sort of the chemistry, the biochemistry behind it. And so it kind of merged together into all of this. And because of that, I started interacting with some of the labs that were doing some of the early studies or, or, or publishing, uh, giving doctors salivary cortisol, sometimes, um, serum but mostly saliva cortisol and then trying to interpret them and giving various interpretations and of course at the same time the po some popular books came out talking about adrenal fatigue and sort of this is what's going on with stress and um i started writing uh about this sort of summarizing some of these things um both the pathophysiology of the hpa axis cortisol production, DHEA production, all these kinds of things. And it wasn't until I started writing about it that I started really digging into these questions, saying, okay, wait a minute. I know that they're saying this, but what is the literature, what does the published literature say about that topic? Um, and then that was in the late 90s. I think I wrote the first thing I ever uh, wrote on this area. And at that time, I, was, I wasn't using the term adrenal fatigue, but I was using adrenal dysfunction. I was still kind of focusing on the adrenal gland um, because that's where everybody was focused on the adrenal gland. Um, and then over the, probably the, of the next decade, I really started refining everything and it sort of came to a head when I wrote uh, the first sort of roadmap, the book on uh, HPA axis dysfunctions. And that was 2015. So, you know, that's almost 15 years later. Um, and that's where I basically, uh, probably the, the five or six or seven years before that, I was really trying to focus and saying, look, this idea of adrenal fatigue, the way it's being defined needs to be corrected. A lot of, even the way the laboratories were, were reporting some of the, um, the ways that they were reporting cortisol and interpreting the results um, were really sort of a creation of their own. It wasn't really mirroring what was happening in the published clinical literature and the research areas. And so, so basically, you know, it's funny that you say I'm, you know, one of the experts in this area. It wasn't really by intention. It was sort of like everyone just was repeating the same things over and over and over in our industry, sort of in the functional integrated medicine community. And somebody needed to come along, me along with several others, and just codify this and say, look, we need to change our nomenclature. We need to change the way we're thinking about this so that we can better leverage the solutions that are available to us um, and stop using sort of these uh, oversimplified terms, which are you know physiologically sort of incorrect. And so I sort of be I became sort of an expert in this area by default because I just I just went and did some of the hard work, I guess, in just looking up, comparing, asking questions, calling people, you know, verifying things, you know, getting you know debunking things that you know a lot of people held near and dear, some still hold near and dear. Um, and so I haven't been completely successful in, in changing some of the nomenclature, but so that's how I got to this place. Uh, 
kind of in a roundabout way, let's say. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, you know, I think 2001 was the original publication of probably the best known book uh, using the term adrenal fatigue. It's a conversation that we have a lot. Um, it's changed over time. So why don't you um, put on your adrenal fatigue hat for a second and just explain in, in basic terms what the understanding is of that model. I'll ask you to explain why it's incorrect afterwards, but what, like, what is that model of like, you have adrenal fatigue, which means what? Well, that's, that's a, actually a very interesting question because that actually has morphed a little bit over time. Really, there's two areas where, where the two terms adrenal fatigue come in. Um, the more generic idea is that you have fatigue that you've, you know, have either you're tired and right. you have the fatigue uh, characteristics because your adrenal glands aren't functioning properly. But ultimately, what a lot of people have explained is um, if we just go jump back to uh, some of the work by Hans Salier, who, who did some Way of back, the original right. animal research. Uh, haven't, I don't know if you've covered this on any other podcast, nope. but um, he, he basically is the one that you know took animals, did various uh, stressors on them and sort of followed this, what he called a, a three-stage model where the animal goes through, uh, their cortisol goes up, they're right. in the excitement stage, they kind of go through adaptation to that and eventually you can exhaust them. Right. And this, this notion that you can eventually exhaust the animal or that you can eventually exhaust the adrenal glands ability to compensate for stress was sort of just taken, maybe not even consciously, and sort of attached to the idea that if you have chronic stress, your adrenal glands become fatigued, they become unable to produce the, the, the level of cortisol needed uh, to balance out the, the stress response, and you have these sort of chronic um, issues. It's sort of in the way that we think um, the pancreas becomes exhausted, uh, the beta cells in the pancreas producing insulin, you, you know, constantly feed, uh, you know, glucose and they have to produce right. in insulin and eventually they just exhaust, they can't produce enough insulin and you get type 2 diabetes. Right. So there are models that you can look at for which that sort of makes sense as a parallel. It just happens to be yeah. not true. Right. As it turns out, I mean, obviously we have adrenal insufficiency, which is, you know, primary adrenal insufficiency where the adrenal gland cannot produce enough cortisol. It's an autoimmune condition where you actually destroy uh, essentially the cells producing uh, cortisol. So that is that we have that. It's real, but rare. It's real. Yeah, obviously um, it's relatively rare. Um, and we get Addison's disease essentially from that. Um, and so the notion that this is also happening at a slower level, let's say with chronic, with a chronic fatigue or a chronic stress situation um, made sense. I mean, it, it makes sense. That's where we should think about because as it turns out, in some of those cases, you have low cortisol levels. So why not just blame the adrenal gland? Right. It turns out um, the adrenal gland doesn't produce cortisol on its own. It produces it as a signal from the brain. And so what we've learned um, and why I think this is so important is that the majority of changes in, in adrenal production are what's going on in the brain. What does the brain see as stress? And then what I think is really more important in this particular case, when we end up having a low cortisol level is what is going on in the brain that's causing a compensation or an adaptation to stress that is reducing the signal to produce cortisol. 
Um, and so that's that's why uh, this is so important. When we start thinking adrenal fatigue, then the knee-jerk reaction is adrenal support. And so we've completely right. then focused on the adrenal gland as a tissue that, well, if we give it enough vitamin C or if we give it enough whatever, glandulars or, or um, adaptogens, we will make the adrenal gland happy again and it'll produce cortisol. Where what we should be thinking about is why did the brain recalibrate its stress response? What is going on in the brain? And that's if we're focusing on that area, it gives us a much broader understanding of the HPA axis and we'll be focused on the right things. So right. I think that's why it's really important. Um, and, I, you know, we're blaming the wrong sort of we're blaming the wrong part of the body, the part of the wrong part of the anatomy. And we're also then focusing on the wrong uh, or leveraging the wrong solutions. Well, you sit in an interesting spot because I think you you have a group of people, particularly historically, who are describing the wrong problem. So then obviously it's hard to find the right solution if you have the wrong problem. And then, you know, on sort of the other side of the aisle, you have the allopathic community, um, a significant portion of which is saying that this model over here is nonsense. Um, and then in a sense, they're right because the description is not correct. And then you have this evidence-based, um, maybe middle ground is not the right description, but where when you properly describe it, what the adrenal fatigue sort of movement seemed to illuminate is that long-term stress leads to problems that are not Addison's disease and not Cushing's disease and worth our attention. Um, but we have to describe it right. And that's why I think it's been so important to get our language right. But it's also frustrating because it's way more interesting and it's a lot easier to get a lay person to Google adrenal fatigue as opposed to HPA axis dysfunction. So that's a mouthful. Um, and so, so I have some sympathy for the fact that it's nice to have like a catchy little phrase that describes a, re a very real problem. But I, I definitely appreciate your pushing our industry towards describing the problem more technically um, in a sound way, because again, if you're, if you're solving the wrong problem, you're not very likely uh, to come up with the right solution. Right. Well, I think, I mean, the, the simple, the simpler language would have been to use the word stress rather than adrenal. So if we would have just used, you know, stress related dysfunction or, you know, chronic stress, I mean, so we know that, that uh, obviously when we, when we started talking about it from a pathophysiology, we want to talk about HPA. Of course, the A is adrenal, so we, we're not skipping the adrenal gland. Right. Just emphasizing the hypothalamus and pituitary in that process. But you're right. I, I think, um, you know, sometimes oversimplification makes it easy to market things. Right. Um, and that sounds good at the beginning, but then it's sort of like you, you dig yourself a hole um, in this area, which I think we did. Um, right. I think we, we kind of uh, emphasized the wrong things. And... Um, we're, I think we're, we're slowly changing it, but, but it's, it's taken a while. There's been a lot of books written. Um, and you know, we have to kind of wait for those to cycle out. Right. Well, and that's why you don't work in marketing because your new book called stress related dysfunction is not going to sell as well, um, as adrenal fatigue. I'm right. pretty well, sure to lay people. Um, but I, but the, the service that you've provided our industry in, in helping us to understand that, uh, more correctly. Um, is is really important. So, what what are some of the what are some of the solutions that don't really work on the brain that have been targeted at like sort of incorrectly at the adrenal glands? 
Well, let me let me just go back to one thing you said uh, before we go on to that, and that is, I think you're right. the The allopathic community has sort of because maybe because of the term adrenal fatigue, or maybe just for for other reasons, endocrinologists have not um, really embraced the idea that um, either acute stressors. I mean, PTSD, of course, they recognize, but but acute stressors or chronic stress um, has demonstrable effects on measurable levels of the HPA axis. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, that you obviously have done a lot of, with and, and myself pointing this out is, you know, if you're testing cortisol correctly, which obviously cortisol is being produced in the adrenal glands, if you do it correctly, you can get a, it can act as a surrogate biomarker for HPA axis function. And a lot of that can change over time as someone has a chronic stressor. So going back to my, my you know, first thing that I said about Hans Salier, we are seeing a little bit of that carryover of his work if we understand how to interpret and test correctly, um, something that the allopathic community probably doesn't recognize until you actually get to a stage of sort of something more dramatic. They would just say, well, you, you, there's nothing going. It's psychosomatic, it, it can be dealt with. Right. And I think what, what this, what, what the, the purveyors of adrenal fatigue, let's call it, or at least the functional medicine community has done, is they've shine, they, they've put a spotlight on the idea that um, psychosocial stress and other aspects of uh, HPA axis stress have a can have a major effect on a person's pathophysiology, their metabolism, their risk for cardiovascular disease, uh, metabolic diseases like diabetes, etc. So I think. Um, I think that area has has been something that um, has been good, but I think we've we've lost some of that momentum because of the nomenclature we've we've used. Um, as far as where we've gotten off on some of these therapies, you know, that's a little bit more difficult to know because a lot of the things that people think, ironically, a lot of the things that people think are helping quote the adrenals, are actually helping the brain more than they think. Um, and so a lot of a lot of things um, that you know a lot of you know vitamins and B vitamins and vitamin C and adaptogens and phosphatidylserine and, and a lot of the licorice and some of these things that we um, have been using for years within the functional medicine integrated medicine community, thinking that I'm helping the adrenal gland, probably eighty percent of that is actually affecting the brain, um, and they just think it's affecting the adrenal gland. Where they've missed it, however, is um, in the way that I teach, the, the way that I teach uh, understanding HPA axis stressors is to really get at the four areas. And I think you've probably seen this before, sort of um, things, what, what are making the brain think there's a stressor that needs to be responded to? And typically those are gonna be circadian disruption, um, glycemic dysregulation, inflammatory signals. All of those are reactive, meaning the brain is reacting to something that's changing in the pathophysiology. Right. Um, and then one is what is, let's say, you know, anticipatory. And that is the whole idea of perceived stress, stress right. which is a huge thing. And obviously perceived stress, the events around us are interpreted differently by different people uh, based on their, you know, the, their history, you know, their, how they were brought up. Also, this is being affected by, uh, neurosteroids and endocannabinoids and a bunch of other things. So 
if you're a clinician and you're and you're standing and somebody's standing in front of you and you say you have a major uh, amount of HPA axis stress, there's a lot of stress in your life, or and I'm measuring you know various changes in cortisol or DHEA. I would rather the, the clinician be thinking about glycemic control, circadian disruption, inflammatory signaling, and perception of stress, because that is what's going on in the brain, rather than saying, you know, what herb can I give you right now, or what, you know, because I'm thinking I'm trying right. to help your adrenal gland. Now, right. eventually, some of those things may be applicable and very helpful. And obviously, I've helped develop products in that area before, but those are going to be helpful only in as much as you can change the incoming stressors and and if you sort of get your eye off the ball and think well all i have to do is support an adrenal gland everything will be fine you're really missing all of these incoming stressors so to me that's the biggest area of uh shifting in focus if we're asking what does the what is the hypothalamus what's triggering the hypothalamus to make this a stressor that's a more important question than you know, what herb might help the adrenal gland, which again, I said is, is very limited. Right. Which is why I think also people tend to succeed by working with a good functional medicine provider, because we tend to focus so much on stress as that perceived stress. So important. Our lives are a mess for so many people right now, but it's one out of four categories. Um, and I think that's, that can be pretty illuminating for people that it's yes, lifestyle and stress, but there are those other major areas of your life that can also set the house on fire. And to your point, if the source of the fire is still ignited, then turning on the hose of whatever's going to adapt that um, is not really fighting a winning battle until you get to the source of it, which is why, you know, functional medicine, I think, is such a, a profound shift is like get to the root cause um, right. before you start just shoveling, you know, some some products towards uh, towards somebody. Um, right. So your talk on the things that people succeed with accidentally, um, in a sense, could that list include pregnenolone? So interestingly, pregnenolone. So, um, of course, we, we probably need to get into this question about the relationship between pregnenolone and cortisol and pregnenolone and DHEA as a precursor. But yeah, I'm um, forcing yeah. you into a segue. How do you like that, Tom? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, uh, maybe we can come back to that, but interestingly, you know, um, maybe we should cover that first because, you know, oral pregnenolone is kind of a mystery. It's a, it's kind of a very interesting, um, ingredient that I think we thought, uh, was fixing one problem and may actually end up helping in a completely different area. Um, so I think, um, you're probably familiar with the term pregnenolone steel, maybe over too familiar with it. Um, and this is a this is the notion that um, you know most clinicians have been taught you know the steroidogenic pathway, and right. so they get they'll get a chart in front of them and they'll show cholesterol. It starts at the top typically, and then cholesterol is converted into pregnenolone in the mitochondria of all steroidogenic cells. So this would be adrenal cells, but also any cell in the body, the ovaries, the testes, the brain, skin, a bunch of other uh, tissues as well can make steroids. And so the first thing you need to do to make steroids is produce pregnenolone in the mitochondria of that cell. And then depending on what is available, what enzymes are available, that pregnenolone will be then converted into one or several different steroid compounds. And as 
functional medicine, integrated medicine clinicians have been taught this. You know, you just watch these charts and you see, you know, typically down the left-hand side, you see cortisol being produced through its various intermediates. And then the androgens are produced and then you get, you know, the estrogens come off of there and you, you see all these different uh, pathways. Right. And what we've been told is, well, in a very stressed individual, the pregnenolone that's available is going to be pulled over here to cortisol. And then there's not going to be enough pregnenolone available to produce either DHEA or estrogens or testosterone. And so that is often called pregnenolone steal or, you know, because the, the, the adrenal gland is stealing away all of the pregnenolone precursor and leaving these other hormone systems uh, to sort of fend for themselves. And they're not able to produce enough of what we right. want. So pregnenolone is being stolen. And then I've also heard it from the other side, calling it a cortisol steal, which would be the cortisol is doing the stealing. So whether you call right. it the pregnenolone steal, I've even heard people say, you mentioned progesterone because it's also an intermediate or cortisol steal. Either way, you're talking about the same concept um, that is also one of those words we put in quotes because it needs um, not necessarily mildly corrected, but more discarded in terms of uh, its yeah. usefulness. So, so continue on um, explaining how that works or doesn't work. Yeah. So that was, that was a common explanation used by, you know, pretty much everybody. It seemed like that was sort of the standard uh, knee jerk. I, I don't even know who to attribute this uh, originally to, to be honest with you, but it was, it was taught it, you know, I, you can go onto YouTube, you can find, you know, dozens and dozens of, of clinicians explaining this. I actually ran into an article just recently um, that was talking about, uh, you know, HPA access issues and kind of written uh, as a summary review article. And, and the person used pregnenolone steel as an explanation for this, surprisingly enough, and gave no references. I mean, there's no reference that they list there. They just say this. So as I was uh, getting into this uh, research, I started asking, the, I, mean, I sat this thing down and I said, wait a minute. I've never seen anybody reference this idea before as, as a published paper. So I started, I actually called uh, some of the world's experts in adrenal steroidogenesis. I just said, let me call these people and say, you know, is this even possible? Is, is this even physiologically possible? And I think one of the problems when we teach the steroidogenesis uh, pathways is if you'll notice, and maybe you could even throw one up here as, as uh, you know, as I'm talking, you can throw one up on your screen for the podcast, but nowhere in there does it show that all of these enzymes that produce all of these steroids are not available in all the tissues. Right. There are three different types of cells that produce cortisol, aldosterone, and DHEA androgens in the adrenal gland. They don't share, they, they don't share their pregnenolone. They produce each, all three uh, of these zones um, are able to produce their own, uh, you know, their own pregnenolone in their own mitochondria, and they don't share this as one big pool. So if you back um, out of that, Tom, like a simpler concept for me is that the testes make testosterone and the adrenal gland makes cortisol. That's an easy concept that, okay, it's happening right. in the testes, the adrenal glands, those are not the same thing. And they're making different hormones out of the same substrate being cholesterol getting pulled in there. And I think what, what you've illuminated for me, which is really helpful, is that even as you get into the adrenal gland, that there are different compartments within that that make the hormones that all start with cholesterol um, 
within that adrenal gland that those, if I'm hearing you correctly, those are even in different compartments within the adrenal gland. And while the testes in the adrenal gland don't share a common pregnenolone pool, um, even the aldosterone, the DHEA, androstenedione, cortisol, uh, even those have their own source of pregnenolone, uh, which is from cholesterol in the, the mini compartment within the adrenal right. gland that makes the specific hormone. Is that correct? Yeah. So let's just take the two, the two tissue types that produce cortisol and DHEA, which is typical, the two that you see in, in comparison, um, cause you test those two. So the zona fasciculata produces cortisol. The zona reticularis produces DHEA. So they are, they are two different tissues. Really, they come from two different um, stem cell sources, um, and they're produced over different amounts of time. The zona reticularis is produced. That's why you don't produce DHEA until you're you know, like eight right. or nine or 10. So it, it comes along later. And so there's no sharing between the pregnenolone between the two. But even more, I mean, this it should have been even simpler to figure this out. Because if you you know the calculation of cortisol, even cortisol at its highest peak doesn't even come close in the orders of magnitude to the total amount of circulating DHEA and DHEA sulfate. So even, even if this concept were theoretically possible, the total amount of pregnenolone needed to produce cortisol, even at its peak, would not really take much of a percentage of the overall amount of DHEA and DHA sulfate produced. So mathematically, it's it's also not even relevant. So, um, but what what drove this was sort of a logic. So what we see in a lot of individuals is over, especially over a long period of time of stress, their cortisol levels seem to go down. Um, or but in be, before that, their DHA levels seem to come down first. And so there's sort of this idea that well during this whole time period that you're making lots of cortisol, you're under lots of stress, what some people call stressed and wired versus stressed and tired. So when you're in that early stage, which again, I don't really like that terminology because it, it doesn't always explain things well, but high cortisol, all of a sudden my DHEA production is going down. Eventually I've lost my pregnenolone, so I can't do either one. And now I'm at the point where, I, where I've exhausted both my DHEA and my cortisol. And so the explanation that was given, um, look, when you put them all on a chart, it seems to make sense. But when you actually ask the question, um, is this physiologically possible? The answer is no. And why that's important is because it is likely that elevated stress causes DHEA production to go down, but it does so in other ways, other signaling ways probably in the zona reticularis, for which we need to figure out what that is. And if we assume that it's pregnenolone steel, we'll stop looking for the right answer. So I actually believe, and actually another side project um, that I would love for to be involved with, with is discovering why the zona reticularis, the tissue that produces DHEA is so vulnerable because it is a tissue that is not formed when you're born. It eventually comes on when you're in, in Adrenarch, when you're eight or nine years old. Right. It, it obviously produces until you're about 30. And then it begins sort of to atrophy and goes away. Um, and you slowly produce less and less DHEA. 
And so, you know, again, if you remember back in the 90s, when I first got into this business, everybody thought if we give DHEA as a supplement, we will, you know, to, to levels of a 30 year old, everyone will be young again. Right. And we obviously realize now that that was didn't happen. Um, but I do believe that because DHEA is a counter regulatory hormone to cortisol, that it's early depletion, the early depletion of DHEA, or maybe let's say the early um, degradation of the production of DHEA from the zona reticularis is an early aging, is a sign of early aging. And because it doesn't act as a counter, because uh, let me say it this way, when you produce less DHEA, you have less of a counter regulatory hormone to cortisol then cortisol becomes more dominant. We'll call it maybe cortisol dominance, sort of like we think of estrogen dominance. Right. And then the down regulation of the stress response is more potent. And then it sort of creates this snowballing effect. So I'm very interested in discovering um, what drives the degradation of the zona reticularis. Um, it's likely going to be things that we all know, like reactive oxygen species and um, probably stress of, of various kinds of metabolic stressors, all of these sorts of things. Um, but the reason it's very difficult to, to do the research is because uh, rodents do not have a zona reticularis. They produce DHEA in their gonads, not in their adrenal glands. So we don't have a lot of good animal models to really understand what's going on here. So that is something that I'm very interested in. So going back to our original question, just to summarize, so pregnenolone steel, cortisol steel is not a real thing. It's physiologically impossible for one, uh, the zona fasciculata producing cortisol to steal the pregnenolone from the zona reticularis. So that's not a good explanation, but likely there is a fundamental reason why DHEA is um, suppressed during chronic stress and figuring out what that is, I think is important. Well, and one of the, the things I would add to that that confuses people sometimes is, you know, when you're being invaded by the Huns, it's not time to reproduce, right? And so when you see people with acute stress, um, you might get more anovulatory cycles and you might get lower progesterone. And that's fed in also to this idea of staring at the steroid pathway and go, okay, progesterone is north of cortisol. So if I'm sucking all this cortisol down here, I can't make enough progesterone. And that also is, as I understand it, an, an incorrect model of yes, stress plays a role in reproduction and there are signaling pathways that play into that. But this simple model of cortisol sucking all your progesterone away so that you can't make a baby uh, is not the model that actually describes it accurately. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me to hear you speak confidently of what is incorrect, which is sort of step one, is knowing what's wrong. And then and then describing for us that we don't actually know all the mechanisms of some of these patterns that we see that are real, that are reproducible at a population level, but we, we don't actually know all of the pieces to the puzzle yet. Um, and that's also what makes this industry kind of fun is, you know, you get out ahead of things. Um, and I think that for functional medicine to me is, has been a great place for functional medicine is to get out ahead of some of these topics. But that's why I think it's also important that you do it with a pretty hefty dose of humility, um, because oftentimes you have, as you're describing, these really uh, like linear, uh, logical uh, conclusions that stare right at you on a steroid pathway, and they're 
they're entirely wrong sometimes when you, you know, when you understand it further. And for me, that steroid pathway, I think is a two edged sword because as I want to have uh, a man understand that his testosterone can get converted to estrogen and as DHEA supplementation can help support testosterone and support estrogen and maybe like a postmenopausal woman, that's helpful. Um, but then we have to properly understand that when, um, when the gonads make hormones, when the adrenals make hormones, that peripheral conversion of whatever's right ahead of you in the, of a, ahead of a hormone in the steroid pathway, that mechanism is not, that doesn't rival glandular production of whatever it is, cortisol, testosterone. I mean, I've seen men take more and more DHEA thinking I'm going to rival testicular production of testosterone by giving the thing that's just ahead of testosterone um, until it works. And understanding the physiology is so important uh, for our patients, but particularly for our providers to know if you don't understand that correctly, then your solutions to a very real problem are not going to get you anywhere. Well, right. And I think the other thing, the assumption, going back to your the, the question that you started this uh, this little section with is, oral pregnenolone, right? What am I doing? So the, the assumption that you have with, you know, oral DHEA or oral pregnenolone is if I take this orally, it will get to the tissue and it will get into the mitochondria, let's say, or at least into the enzymatic pathway so that the, the adrenal gland or the testes or, or, or the ovaries or whatever will then take this pregnenolone and begin putting it into the pathway of produ- producing the hormone at once a hormone that it wants. I don't know that there's any evidence that oral intake of these precursor, let's say, or intermediate hormones gets into a gland and then converts into a end, uh, end product. What we probably have going on here is something that most clinicians are probably somewhat unaware of because it's really not talked about much. And that is neurosteroids, right? Um, pregnenolone, pregnenolone sulfate, um, DHEA and DHEA sulfate. And then there's a, another, a whole nother, uh, set of like allopregnenolone and some others, um, they're produced in the brain and have capacity to bind receptors in the brain as DHEA, as pregnenolone or the sulfated versions of those, they don't have to be converted to anything. And likely these high doses, relatively high doses, let's say of pregnenolone that were being used that were having an effect on somebody's, let's say, stress-related outcomes had nothing to do with precursors to cortisol, precursor to DHEA. It probably had to do with the fact that pregnenolone can get through the blood-brain barrier, it can be sulfated, and then can function as a neurosteroid, which then can modulate the hypothalamus and pituitary signaling, which then modulates, potentially modulates and downregulates some of the, the stress signals. So, um, you know, in the end, you'd say, well, it may have worked for some people, but it worked in a completely different way right. than what, what clinicians were thinking. And high-dose pregnenolone has been only really studied for schizophrenia. It really hasn't been studied for any of these more nuanced stress-related outcomes but at least that gives us a model of probably how it's right. how it was working. When you're bridging together these two phrases that are incorrect that have led to to enough accidental success that it's entrenched people in their thinking, which has yeah. stopped progress. Because you take adrenal fatigue. So if I go backwards, you take adrenal fatigue, you take a saliva test. I'm going to have like a paint by numbers simplified model, which says if my saliva 
is low, I have stage three adrenal fatigue, right? And then I know what that means. So then I'm going to give you pregnenolone because it's my master hormone, which if you are a cortisol deficient person, certainly your body's going to make cortisol out of that. And then that will fix the problem. And then what you're describing is, um, for better or worse, you're actually succeeding clinically. So you, you have a patient, you have a simple story, you have a simple solution, and you're actually succeeding. And on, a, on an individual basis, good for that patient that they feel better. But as an industry, shame on us if we're not correcting that because we're not going to take that any further if our model is actually a broken model that's having some measure of success um, sort of by accident. And that's why I think what you've done in outlining what's actually going on um, has been super helpful to sort of recalibrating that where some of the, some of the solutions are similar or the same, and some of them are different, uh, but the path towards the future of understanding this better and having better solutions, um, is a lot brighter if we get our terminology and if we get our understanding, you know, corrected on, on those two phrases of adrenal fatigue and this, this idea of the pregnenolone steel. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think when you combine you know, a, you know, I think a change in a, a more appropriate understanding of the pathophysiology, which then will affect our nomenclature, will affect our questions. Hopefully it'll begin affecting um, more fully what we do with patients. But when you combine that with what you guys are doing and others are doing with changing laboratory tests, looking for now more, looking for things that we weren't looking for before, um, you know, back in the day, before I before I wrote the first book, um, trying to you know I you know I went to all the different labs that were doing testing at that time and looked at their um, the way that they would do the instructions for salivary cortisol. And as you remember talking, and I talked with you on that, since everyone was doing them differently to capture that that peak of the cortisol awakening response, which I know you guys have talked about the car most of these labs weren't catching that. In fact, the majority of them were probably testing the first sample in the morning, a half hour to an hour after that peak. And is it any wonder that when you look at the reference ranges, those individuals were hypocortisol, had low cortisol levels, because that if you miss that peak, those people are going to look like they have low cortisol right. levels. Right. So I think there was, again, a, another sort of, because of the logic that people had and the tests the tests all were coming back. Well, everybody's low cortisol. Therefore, we're going to put everybody in, you know, stage three, unless they, you know, happen to have really high cortisol. Everybody started being lumped into this. And sort of the, there was sort of this group thing of that this is what's happening with everybody. And if I solve it with this, I'm seeing some success. But a lot of times they would have difficult patients and then they would they wouldn't even know where to start then. They would kind of they were like, well, this worked this is telling me you're, you know, stage three or whatever. And why I can't, why aren't you responding? Like I thought you would, it's because yeah. there's something else going on there. Yeah. It's funny. And then there are other wrinkles to that that are interesting from a laboratory perspective. Um, I can think of one example where a lab had a different assay for the morning cortisol and the afternoon cortisol. So it used to be the same assay, one, two, three, four. Um, and then the assay switched, but only for those latter three points because it was a more sensitive assay. But the calibration in adjusting from assay number one to assay number two wasn't really done very well. Um, and so there was a moment in time where 40% of the people that were testing 
were actually coming out low because the reference range and the numbers sort of shifted a little bit. And so you get, you get this confluence of, you know, as this industry evolves of our thinking can be so far off based on the understanding and ideas that take off and, and the technology needing to catch up um, and to get sophisticated enough to where the answers are, uh, that we're testing the right thing um, and also that our technology is accurate enough to give us the picture that we want. Uh, but so it's a complicated thing. I'm curious for you, when you want to peer into that world or you are encouraging a doctor to peer into that world, what's at the top of the food chain for you in terms of analytical tools to give you the information that you want to see? Well, I think when you come, well, I mean, I think we've talked about this. I, I obviously probably the, the majority of the work for HPA axis related stress response. So um, whether it's perception of stress, whether it's the trier social stress test where you can do that um, experimentally, um, people that have looked at long-term stress for, you know, mothers who have been taking care of their, you know, sick children, um, actually teachers that have been teaching all these, most of that work's been done using saliva. Right. Um, and typically, like we talked about, um, either the diurnal or that, that salivary uh, cortisol in the morning, the, the car, um, and that change, because we're, we're dealing with both the dynamic, um, you know, sort of the, the plasticity of the HPA axis, as well as the anticipatory stress of that day. Right. So I think that's, I think um, what this industry did, and of course, um, you know, the many labs that did have salivary tests recognize that. Unfortunately, they didn't always um, go back to the literature that had been, you know, been published over the last 20 years. And I think, I think slowly that has changed, partly because of my book and sort of confronting them with the, the data um, and then adding the cortisol awakening response. So I think, I think that has helped a lot, but again, and you know, as well as I do to, to emphasize this, to clinicians, you can only, you're only testing what happened that day. Okay. They're spitting in the tube or they're, you know, holding the swab in their mouth for that day. It does, can't tell you what happened a week ago. It can't tell you what's going to happen a week later. So a clinician needs to understand, um, what they're measuring for that day and then how to, how to get that information in with everything else they're measuring, uh, you know, other biomarkers that they're measuring with that patient, other right. life, life inventory and life stress. So it's really important that they, you know, for instance, they ask questions about, you know, what happened the day that you tested um, those kind of things, because you're measuring, um, you know, when you're, when you're spitting in a tube, it's only going to tell you what, what the cortisol is in the saliva when they spit and interpreting what that means. When did they wake up? You know, did they exercise that day? These kind of things. So that you, you need, you don't want to just rely only on the test result. Um, you need to understand how does that, what's the context of that information in the life of the patient. Um, and I think the other things that, of course, you guys are doing um, is, is asking more questions. Obviously, is, there's more going on than just free cortisol. Cortisol converts to cortisone, and that is affected by obesity and, you know, uh, insulin sensitivity and expression of different enzymes and probably inflammatory conditions and all kinds of other things. Um, as one of the emphasis that I make in my book is that knowing what, what level of cortisol is there is not the same thing as the knowing how much signaling of cortisol is there, because there are all kinds of other things that influence cortisol signaling. And I'm not going to get to all of them now, but 
understanding that free cortisol represents what the body wants to have available as a signal, but understanding some of the other things that you are teasing out with the metabolites in the urine, metabolites, maybe even in the saliva eventually, or other, other places to actually ask questions about, you know, what is the body producing in cortisol, but then how is it managing that process in, in allowing it to be a signal? Um, and I think, I think we're just at the beginning stages of understanding that, that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. Uh, our, our goal originally was we want the diurnal pattern, which you're saying is really important. We added the metabolites in and we got some really interesting, you know, information that in a fraction of cases sort of profoundly like illuminated, you know, what was going on when someone's got a concurrent thyroid issue that's, that's adjusting their cortisol clearance or in cases of obesity. Um, and then your insistence, um, thankfully on the importance of adding to that picture that the cortisol awakening response. So looking at, yes, the up and down pattern throughout the day, very important, but that spike that happens in those first 30 minutes that you can only see in saliva, um, you know, you are influential, um, really just, just you as an individual in doing what you've done and putting it in front of the faces of labs. And I, I can still remember, um, hearing that and sort of resisting that in my mind, cause it's a lot of work. Um, and then one day I just, I woke up at 2 AM and rolled over to the wife and said, Katie, I gotta go to the lab. Um, and like <laughs> six weeks later, we launched the Dutch plus cause we just like got on fire with like, yeah, you know what? We have to listen to the literature. Um, not so much Tom as the literature, um, because he's, he's putting that on a platter for us to, uh, to consider. And the argument is, is strong that that adds an independent variable. Uh, and that's where our Dutch plus came from is like heavily influenced, uh, from your insistence that the literature was right, that the diurnal pattern is important. Um, you know, and then we can talk about the metabolites, but on top of all that, looking at that mini stress test of those first 30 minutes and what's happening was important. And what we found also is that, um, the cotton swabs were really important that we'd say here, patient, you have not had anything to drink. Uh, your mouth is dry and I need two milliliters of saliva. Some labs are even asking for three milliliters and they're done and 20 minutes have passed. So if 20 minutes have passed, you're, you're already halfway up that curve and you don't have an accurate, accurate, um, look at that. So we found that to be a really, really important piece, which was sort of stymieing the, the saliva industry because, um, and it's, it's nobody's fault, but those silly swabs absorb progesterone. So if your model is to get all your sex hormones out of saliva and add a car, it's like impossible. And so for us, we were getting really accurate progesterone levels, you know, which we've published serum correlation with our progesterone metabolites and same with the estrogen. So we love getting that out of urine. So then it made it easy for us to add the, uh, the cortisol picture from saliva to look at the diurnal pattern, the cortisol awakening response and the metabolites in our, you know, in our Dutch plus. And that's been, um, a really fantastic, like most advanced way, I think of a sort of telling that story of someone's, of someone's HPA axis. Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of funny. There's a lot of different stories that, that came about. I remember when, um, I was putting this together before the book came out, or maybe just as the book came out, I had had personal conversations with a lot of the different labs and was be beside myself in some ways to say, look, the cortisol awakening response is the most used biomarker for salivary cortisol in stress research by a long shot. 
I mean, it was, you know, it was becoming the standard go-to biomarker um, and none of the labs offered it. And then none of the labs even talked about it. Um, and I went to them individually, as, as you remember, perhaps, and this is actually maybe just almost before you had set up your, your company. Um, so I don't know that we talked on at that, at that time, you, you may have been with somebody else. I won't, I don't say who, but, um, <laughs> and, and really the, their, their answer to me was, oh, that's interesting. Um, but basically we're, we've been doing this the same way, you know, in their mind, they're thinking, well, I don't want to go through new reference ranges. I don't want to do all these different things. That's nice. But you know, nobody's asking us for this. So we're just going to leave it. And then when I came out, when the book came was published and we invited everyone in the same room and I said that, and literally, I think you remember there was like probably five or six of the lab companies there. Um, right. Then I was like, okay, well now they all heard me say it. And now, uh, I'm, I'm glad to say you and a few others have really taken it to heart and have even pushed it beyond, you know, what I had recommended and, and said, look, we need to not do what we've done for the last 20 years because it's just the same thing we've done for the last 20 years. We need to begin engaging literature, begin as you are publishing some of your own data, asking new questions because um, you have access to data that really doesn't exist anywhere. Nobody's doing the thousands of different tests that you're running um, and asking different questions and, and able to compare some of the metabolites that you're looking at. And so I've encouraged you and others to say, look, dig into that, look, get, get a statistician, you know, start asking, you know, start interrogating your own data and anonymizing it and things like that and, and seeing, see what's going on because these clinicians really are struggling to try to figure this out and you're sitting on a pot of data that could help us start unraveling this. Yeah, we, we hired an, an endocrinologist who was also a statistician, and it's been great to see what was able to be pulled out of that data because the, the, the very thing that pushed me towards our model was all of these people talking about the relationship between weight gain and cortisol. And what they meant was free cortisol. And I mean, huge companies selling lots of saliva tests. And I don't mean the lab. I mean, the clients of the lab that have this, these whole like world set up of come here, lose weight. We're going to look at your cortisol and all of that, all with this underlying assumption that there's this strong relationship between free cortisol and weight gain and, and fat mass and that sort of thing. And then you I actually looked at the data, you know, hundreds of thousands of points and the relationship between BMI and free cortisol was either nothing or very slightly negative, not positive, right? And like, it, it kind of rocked my world of like, there's this narrative that we're telling that's not, it's not that it's not as true as we want it to be. It's just wrong. Um, and that's what got us into looking at the metabolites is as you look at the metabolites and you plot those, which is um, kind of next up on our list of things to publish. We have the manuscript almost ready to go is when you look at those, there's a dramatic increase in how in the cortisol metabolite output as you go from the skinniest to, you know, the most fat mass um, in terms of when you're looking at the population and just what we see in in the lab results. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, I want to I want to put one piece of this to you to get your feedback on something because it's been something I've described, uh, but not with as much confidence as I'd like is that cortisol is made in the adrenal gland, right? And then it's shoved through the adrenal medulla at really high concentrations compared to what's circulating, 
right? Like really high concentrations. And you can correct me if anything I say is wrong. Um, okay, so the the total amount that you produce as a very um, obese person is a lot more than a skinny person, but there's not more in circulation. There's just more goes out. It gets, my interpretation, stored in the fat, metabolized, and it ends up in a toilet, but it's not circulating as free cortisol at higher levels. So the adrenal glands make it a lot, which means the adrenal medulla is a hypercortisol state in that person, even if they don't have, even if their salivary cortisol is low, right? They're making lots of cortisol. And then in the adrenal medulla, norepinephrine turns into epinephrine, and that relationship is pushed by cortisol. So in these patients, these were the classic patients we were seeing early on that was so profound to me, is I have low free cortisol, which people used to say, oh, you don't make very much cortisol. Aha, but I have high levels of metabolites. So since people were ignoring that information, they were taking those patients and saying, we got to get you making more cortisol. Well, they were already making a lot. You just didn't know it, right? So then they would ramp up their cortisol production. And now the adrenal medulla is full of even more cortisol, pushing norepinephrine to epinephrine. And we were, and, and then in my mind, anecdotally, we're seeing this sort of wired but tired because you're making more, you know, adrenaline, but you've still got you know, this issue, does that, is that description interesting to you? And does it seem like an appropriate description of why it might be important to look at both the free cortisol and the metabolites, um, as we do in our testing? Um, well, you asked a whole bunch of questions there, and I think a lot of them are interesting. A lot of them are probably very experimentally, extremely difficult to ask, like for instance, how you know, how the production of cortisol affects internally to the medulla conversion between, you know, anything, you right. know, whether it's epinephrine, norepinephrine, or anything else that's going on there. So um, the one thing that's interesting is uh, on top of all the, the issues that you mentioned is tissues can dramatically change their sensitivity to cortisol on either a uh, circadian rhythm or in, in a dynamic fashion. So for instance, you can, you can put cortisol on a tissue at one time a day and it will have one effect versus another time of day and it'll have a completely different effect. Um, it, also the adrenal gland has different effects to ACTH and, you know, these kind of things. So, so the idea that all of this is static, um, is and or or that all tissues are the same i think is another area that needs to be sort of corrected in the way that we think about this so i would i would guess that it would seem like the medulla would have a way to compensate for that so that you wouldn't have the fight or flight um process completely overtaken by cortisol um you, you know just just you know the idea of a circadian rhythm the suprachiasmatic nucleus which controls our you know our central clock in the brain has no receptors for cortisol, no glucocorticoid receptors. So there's other tissues that have different sorts of glucocorticoid receptors to manage this effect. So, um, so, so when I first got here, the idea was there was three, three state, you know, three parts on your, uh, your dial stage one, stage two, and stage three. Right. And it was assumed that, if I measure cortisol, free cortisol, let's say, 
I can, I'll be able to, NDHEA, I'll be able to tell you what three areas you're in. I think what we're realizing is that maybe those three stages are, are not there really, perhaps, but certainly almost every cell has a dimmer switch has, mm -hmm. or an intensifying switch. So when you're talking about obese patients and adipocytes where you have an accumulation of um, cortisol, or cortisone, which then can convert back to cortisol in the, you know, the adipocytes and be released. So as you know, the question about, am I measuring the cortisol produced today or am I measuring the cortisol produced and stored in the adipose tissue and released mm, today? Right. And so all of these questions are questions that we don't know the answer to. We don't, we don't know, um, and, and when you add what you're talking about is upregulation or downregulation of, of, you know, the enzymes that metabolize um, in the kidney, in the liver, and then what you're seeing in the urine, how much of that is free cortisol produced today? How much is this free cortisol that was released? How much was metabolized? What's been upregulated? What's been downregulated? These are questions that I think um, that I'm hoping that, you know, you and I can start you know, asking and teasing out and, and getting at, um, because I think as we do, not only will we be able to affect what I was talking about, the HPA access stressors, but then if we can start getting at what causes cortisol signaling to change, how can we, you know, affect that and reduce some of the negative consequences of, of cortisol triggering, right. let's say metabolic dysfunction and you know adipose tissue uh, synthesis and things like that. Then I think we are really getting at sort of both ends of the spectrum when it comes to sort of stress responses. But um, but some of the experiments that you described, some of the questions that you described, I'm not sure we have good experimental uh, models to to get get at that. So those are gonna those are probably gonna be theoretical for a while. My guess would be right. Yeah, it's been difficult in the literature to find some of those um, like deep questions or maybe they're more tri they're more uh, esoteric questions, but they're important. Uh, it's hard to find work on on some of those. You know, interestingly, the measuring of the metabolites was one of the final sort of um, clues to me that you were right about adrenal fatigue, because if you take a skinny person and you stress them, they make more cortisol. Their adrenal gland makes more cortisol. If you take a very heavy person and they're not stressed based on their metabolites, they make two to three times more cortisol than that skinny person every day, 24 seven for their whole life. So then if you think about that from the fact that the adrenal gland is every day making three times more cortisol than that skinny person, even if they're stressed out, um, you should have, we should have seen a relationship between quote adrenal fatigue and uh, body mass index um, that ran through the population because those people are literally cranking out uh, gobs of cortisol every day, whether their stress response is functional or dysfunctional. So that was that was a pretty good tell for me that like yeah the model that model is broken um, and and needs uh, needs adjusting. So well uh, yeah and and of course you probably I don't know if you did the mathematical calculation of the free cortisol plus all the metabolites. My guess is those those obese individuals are producing more total cortisol because of that. 
Yes, um, not well. They're and, free. They're free cortisol. The semantics get complicated. But if by total cortisol you mean the total of the free cortisol, they don't make more of that. No, if total, you mean total of all cortisol, yeah, the total of all the metabolites, the metabolites um, is easy to approximate because you just need to measure the metabolites because they're so much bigger than the free cortisol that it's it's irrelevant in terms of the total because it's really only a couple percent of the total of those metabolites. So, and the total of the metabolites correlate nicely with BMI, which is again, something that we have yeah. written up and we need to get out in the literature. So, right. and that's why I think if you look at the historical data that connected elevated cortisol with obesity, that was all done with the serum and probably that was serum total cortisol, not free cortisol. So that's probably why, you know, people assumed that if you just went to free cortisol, you would see the same thing. And what you're showing is no, you're, right. you're seeing something different, which obviously is interesting. Uh, because it, it, on the one hand, and you, you and I have kind of bantered back and forth, you know, what do you, what do you treat as a clinician? Do you treat the free cortisol, which is what the body is trying to control? Or do you treat, you know, these other things? And I think the answer is you want to treat the patient. So I always, these are biomarkers. You don't want to treat these as a disease or as condition. Um, but it's interesting that the free cortisol, I always tell people is, this is what the body wants to control because it is the it is the most powerful signal. But I think what you're learning is some of the, the physiology behind that. And and we need to understand um, that that can be maybe modulated as well. Yeah. In the majority of cases, the free cortisol is the primary information that you want to focus on. It's the cases where, you know, the friend of mine who was accidentally overdosing on thyroid, who had low free cortisol and gobs of metabolites as a skinny woman. It's like, well, what in the world is causing that? Because you're hypothyroid. That's the opposite of what makes sense. And then she figured out, oh, I'm dosing twice a day. My doctor told me once a day, oops. And, and so she had low free cortisol as a consequence of induced yeah. hyperthyroidism. And it's the, in those types of cases where you're not necessarily treating one or the other, you're just understanding their story better so that you can, you can get to the final solution when considering, you know, all of the variables that you're looking at it, it's those types of cases where it profoundly, you know, illuminates what's going on with somebody where, where we really like appreciate having that extra information. Right. So awesome information on these topics. So, you know, as I look at it, adrenal fatigue, pregnenolone steel, cortisol awakening response, like your influence has been huge. You're out ahead of the industry on that as, um, you know, the super nerd that's in the literature more than the rest of us. Uh, so what do you see out ahead of this industry that hasn't been adopted that needs to be considered more uh, more strongly as it relates to cortisol, HPA axis, those types yeah. of topics? Anything on the top of your mind? Well, I think I, what I just said is I think one thing that's um, that I do lay out in the book, and that is understanding the cortisol signaling can be affected by so many different things. Cortisol binding globulin. Um, 11 HSD that converts cortisol right. to cortisone, these kind of things. So I think that's an area that I think is often forgotten. Or probably the area that I have been spending the most time in recently is, so if I said, hey, the HPA axis is not about, all about adrenal, that's kind of one corrective that I've tried to make. But now I'm kind of on a corrective saying, the HPA axis is really not all about stress. Um, the HPA axis is really a metabolic regulator. It is a surveillance for energy management um, for which stress 
hijacks, if you want to say it that way, or it's obviously very good at, at correcting is if you don't live through today, you're not going to be, you know, it's not going to help to live through tomorrow. So, you, right. you know, the, the management of energy, but there's a, there's a reason why the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access is why glucocorticoid is a glucose regulating hormone, why it regulates energy, right? Why it is highly involved in the circadian uh, fluctuation of metabolism. And so what I'm trying to get clinicians to even understand more is the reason that chronic stress affects so many different things metabolically is because the HPA axis is the core metabolic regulator. Mm. So when you, when you take your normal system and you constantly say, hey, we need to borrow you because, uh, you know, now if, if I needed to borrow your help because a, a lion is chasing me in the classic, you know, way that we try to explain, right. you know, the HPA axis, you know, probably I'm going to either die or I'm going to have a solution that's going to need to be fixed for the next 12 hours. But if I am constantly in a relationship or I have constant financial issues or I have glycemic dysregulation or I'm working third shift or, you know, name all of the, right. the potential issues that we have, these chronic stressors that we impose upon ourselves oftentimes and we don't get out of, if we are constantly borrowing our normal circadian metabolic uh, machinery to constantly fix this thing, eventually it's going to begin adapting to that chronic stressor. And now our efficiency for running our metabolic machinery is going to be deficient. And so what the reason we need to fix chronic stress so much is because it affects everything. It affects everything. And so what I'm, what I'm, I'm going to be teaching uh, on sort of this topic, I've been talking about it to understand not only how the HPA axis is integrated with circadian biology, but how it's in, integrated with mitochondrial function, how it's integrated with insulin resistance and gastrointestinal function and down the line. And when you start looking at things like CRH, we think, oh, CRH just binds to the CRH receptor. Well, it's in a family of something called urocortins, and they bind to a bunch of different receptors. And ACTH, well, guess what? ACTH is produced as this long peptide, which is divided up into all these other peptides, only one of which is ACTH. And guess what? All of these other peptides bind to receptors that have effect on metabolism and immune function and down the line. So as as I start as I start going back and we start thinking, well, the HPA axis, that's just CRH, ACTH, cortisol, right? And that's what we've learned. And as it turns out, it begins to mushroom. And you realize that this is really a surveillance system that's designed to protect the whole body's metabolism. It affects the GI tract, the immune system. Um, and the stress response becomes sort of like this okay, everybody stop what you're doing. We've got something to take care of over here. It's sort of like in your office, if you're, if you had a flood in your office, okay, everyone still has to, you know, you hopefully all your, uh, your machines aren't going to shut down and, and everybody's samples aren't going to get lost. But if you have a flood in your office, everybody has to stop what they're doing, pump out the water, fix out, fix what's happening, dry everything out and then get back to work. Well, if there's a flood every day in your office, you're not going to get a whole lot of work done. And so if you have, a, have to constantly hijack your own 
surveillance system, your own metabolic machinery, your own, um, you know, networking kind of system for, let's say, sometimes false alarms and sometimes real alarms, you are going to have to compensate. And I think that is the ultimate reason why chronic stress causes so much uh, damage to so many different tissues and creates such a burden on chronic disease. And so, um, so that's part of the other thing that I'm thinking about is if I can convince people that stress is not about the adrenals, I'd like to convince them that the HPA axis is not all about stress. And, um, and that I think will get us to the bigger picture of chronic disease management yeah. for which the brain is in control. Well, if nothing else, you've convinced me that as I peel the layers of the onion, I'm still in that outer part that you don't even eat. Um, and, and then I got a long ways to go. So, uh, which leaves more books for you to write and more things for us to discover about just, I mean, it's the amazing like complexity of, of how we're made is just, is like a marvelous thing. So I, I really appreciate your insights. I think it's super helpful. It's helpful for us in the moment, but I mean, I mean, really my hat's off to you in being in a position to just be honest with the information that's in front of us, in front of you. Uh, in a way that really has shifted the course of things. And it's exciting to to think about um, where some of those things are headed um, and it takes time. And so it'll be fun to to continue asking those questions and trying to answer, trying to answer um, some of the good questions um, that you're posing. So, th so thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad you guys have the curiosity to want to know some of these things and keeps me asking questions. All right. Thanks, Tom. We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course, a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also stay connected with us by following at Dutch test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources.